It's the feed on NR92. Just do it! Hello, and welcome to the 2018 Olympic feed on NR92. I'm Connor Sutherland, joined by the lovely Jenna Winterburn. Thanks, Connor. Wow, what an exciting time to be alive. We have so many great events today. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jenna. Hey, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know that only four countries have not boycotted the Olympics? Are you going to tell me which those countries those are? Ha, yep. Greece, Australia, France, and the UK have participated in every Olympics since its inception in 1896. How interesting. You know who might be boycotting this year's Olympics, Connor? Fans of the NHL. This is the first year in quite a while that NHL players are not invited to represent their country's hockey teams. Uh, There are definitely some mixed feelings about this. Ice hockey was implemented into the Olympic Games in 1920. The men's tournament was introduced originally in the 1920 Summer Olympics and was transferred permanently to the Winter Olympics in 1924. Originally, the Soviet Union entered teams of athletes who were all students, soldiers, or were working in some sort of profession, when in reality, they were paid by the state to train for their sport on a full-time basis, while other countries used actual amateur athletes. It wasn't until 1987, the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, decided to allow professional athletes to compete in the Olympics. There was some confusion regarding the NHL participation until March of 1995, where an agreement was made allowing NHL players to participate in the Olympics, starting with the 1998 Games. The NHL not participating in the 2018 Games ends the run of five consecutive Winter Olympics with NHL players. Most NHL team organizations are in favor as they do not want to see a pause in the league's regular season. However, this news comes to many players' dismay, including Alexander Steen of the St. Louis Blues. It's such an amazing tournament. There's nothing really like it. I mean, you can make up World Cups and other types of tournaments, but there's nothing like going to a tournament like that and being a part of your your country's team and, and the whole atmosphere that goes on there. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that us as players in have more of a voice in it. There are also mixed emotions from NHL, hockey, and Olympic fans. I think it's a travesty because we're not going to watch a bunch of juniors or people who aren't professional playing the Olympics. I think it actually gives other people an opportunity, so I think it's good. They should have NHL players. They're the best, clearly. I'm excited to see how Team Canada does, seeing as we don't have NHL players. Personally, I love having the NHL be part of the Olympics. Most NHL players represent the city in a country where they aren't even from. They should continue to have an opportunity to represent their country and make their country proud. Not only that, but it isn't every day that you get to see the talents of Drew Doughty, Connor McDavid, and Sidney Crosby play with each other versus against each other. This rule is only implemented for 2018 as of right now. We'll see what happens in the future. Definitely a change that most people aren't receiving very well. You're absolutely right, Connor. However, there are a few things that have changed in the Olympics, including the Olympic Olympic Village, which is being very well received. You know who knows all about that? Our very own Tessa Schneider. That's right. We're joined live by Tessa from the Olympic Village. Live from Pyeongchang. Hey guys, I'm live. It's uh, it's four in the morning right now. I'm partying out with some some Olympic athletes, so maybe. Uh, maybe just just play the tape from earlier, okay? Just play the tape. I'm here in Pyeongchang to do some investigating. There's always tons of talk about the incredible arenas and stadiums built for each Olympic Games we see. However, there's always one thing that seems to get overlooked. The Olympic Village. See, if we just go by what the headlines say, the Olympic Village literally just sounds like college without the stress. 
Let's talk history. For a long time, National Olympic Committees would rent buildings around the host city to house participants. This was pricey, as you can imagine. The organizers of the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris built cabins near the venue to give the athletes easy access. The 1932 Summer Olympics in L.A. served as the model for the accommodations we see today, essentially dorm rooms to house and feed athletes. So this is what I learned about... Life in the Olympic Village. Athletes love food. These beasts are burning thousands of calories a day. They need sustenance. They need nutrients. They need McDonald's, which is typically offered for free by the bucket in the dining halls of Olympic villages. Food is abundant. It has to be. It's what fuels these people. These guys and gals need consistent consumption. The free stuff they get is bonkers. Sponsors don't hold back when it comes to dishing out merch. I mean, seriously, imagine the media exposure. Chocolate, cola, hats, shirts, water bottles, anything you can imagine. Loot galore. And let me tell you, the partying is real. Some athletes never touch alcohol. Some won't stay out past 9 p.m. Listen, these people take it seriously. Some of them dedicate their entire lives to compete in maybe two or three Olympic Games before retiring. So it's understandable to let loose once your competition is over. Many clubs and bars will open in the host city exclusively for athletes. And if you can stroll in with a medal on your neck, even better. Every night is a party, which leads us pretty nicely to the most talked about topic before the start of every game. Sex in the Olympic Village. This year, Pyeongchang is hosting nearly 3,000 athletes from 92 countries. That's a record for the largest number of competitors ever at the Winter Olympics, but that's not the only record they broke. This year's Olympians are the proud owners of 110,000 condoms. If you divvied that up per athlete, that's more than 37 condoms per person, worth roughly $94,000. And you would think these little rubber buddies would just be jammed into the side tables of the athletes' bedrooms, but no. They're available at the Olympic Village, the stadiums, and the press center. It makes sense, really, if you think about it. A bunch of chiseled people exuding athleticism and looking to party. I mean... I get it. And there you have it. Life in the Olympic Village literally sounds like a vacation that just requires muscles. This has been Tessa live in Pyeongchang at the Olympic Village. Fantastic. Thanks, Tessa. Uh, Tessa? T uh, okay, I think we lost her. Ha <laughs> Great. Sounds like it's quite a time down there. Oh, you said it, Connor. One can only imagine how much work and effort is put into setting up the Olympics, Jenna. There is no denying that, Connor. There are so many different events to set up for. A city has to make huge changes to ensure that everything runs smoothly. Courtney Ray joins us now to give us some insight into all the hard work that goes behind the scenes. Hey, Connor. Hey, Jenna. There's so many people that help make the Olympics a reality. I thought I'd give you guys a an inside look at behind the scenes from one of the past Olympics. The biggest and best parties need a party planning committee. Let's take a look at this from the Olympic podium. To make the biggest international sporting event a success, thousands of people work behind the scenes so that the athletes and audience get to have an enjoyable, memorable experience of a lifetime. Paul Brasso was a venue management operations coordinator at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, specifically Canada Hockey Place, the ice hockey venue for the Games that year. Before the torch was brought into the city and the Games began, there was a lot to prepare. Three weeks before the Games, we took control of the building and 
have to completely convert it from what was an NHL arena to an Olympic arena, which is a huge task covering every single logo and every signage piece to creating eight more dressing rooms because every country needs a, a similar dressing room. To building out all the press tribunes that are sitting in the stands, just really a huge amount of work to transition it into a uh, an Olympic venue versus a, a regular venue. Having worked for the Olympics for 366 days, Paul had a lot to set up prior, but also many things to look after during so that every single event ran smoothly. And when the games hit, everything goes south and all your days just become responsive. There's no more planning, all the planning's done. Everything you're doing is, is reactionary. When you think of the Olympics, you think of the athletes competing first and how significant of a moment it is for them. But even for those behind the scenes, it's just as unforgettable. When you're working with the Olympics, you don't realize how big it is. You, you honestly don't. Because I lived and breathed it for a year, but then the last you know, 20 days of the actual Olympics, you're working 18-hour days and you go to your apartment or back home or hotel room and you go to bed. And you get up the next morning and you do it again. So I didn't realize how big the Olympics were until I got back from the Olympics and had some downtime and started going through paper clippings that people had saved or PBR moments that people had saved and being like, wow, I was there. I didn't realize that the whole world was watching that. It's an event that doesn't need any introductions. It's one of those special things that has and will continue to touch people's lives across the world. Where would the Olympics be without all the people that put all the events together? I say we're ready for the Olympics to begin this year. Absolutely. How interesting. Thanks, yeah. Courtney. Yeah, Courtney, real interesting. Now that we know how the Olympics is typically set up, you got to wonder, what happens to all the hard work after the Olympics? Really good question, Connor. It's a good thing we have Rob Smith here who was able to give us some insight on that. Uh, hey, guys. Just finished the luge to Timmy's. I'm happy in all for the games, but I'm a little concerned for the city they're held in. The Olympics are an international phenomenon that attracts the world's attention. One city gaining a major boom in tourism through the presence of the Olympics, through infrastructure and publicity. What of the Olympic villages after the games, though? Destruction and neglect. Most will be abandoned, left for nature, or some destroyed by war. They aren't really given much of a choice, as countries that host the games do so at risk of committing economical suicide. Does the International Olympic Committee care? Not even close. Not if you want to stay in budget. Unfortunately, construction budgets tend to get bloated. A 2012 study found that since 1960, Olympic Games have gone, on average, 179% over budget. Once the Olympics pack up and leave, however, it's nearly impossible to keep the massive new sporting venues busy, and they often sit empty while still costing millions to maintain. The empty, decaying stadiums and venues in Athens are the perfect example of overbuilding. One proposed solution to this problem is to simply host the games in the same two cities every four years. But that doesn't come to mind. Not if the IOC is to make any money off of the cities willing to risk it all. In fact, the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens created so much debt that they are partially responsible for the financial collapse in Greece. And don't expect the IOC to help out. Not only do they not pay athletes, they don't share their revenue with host countries, nor do they pay taxes. This is all, of course, according to some conspiracy theorists against the Olympics. So, what does this mean for the pools that have become mosquito breeding zones? Or the buildings falling in on themselves? Well, just nothing. No one seems to have cared about these villages, except for Calgary and Beijing, 
and other few select cities who are going to reuse the sites as housing or for future games that they can entirely all in all, afford. The Olympic villages can be just built to be a permanent monument out of lack of money to keep them looking nice, or just a representation of the culture and politics of that particular city. Wow, Rob, super informative. It's a shame that these buildings are going to waste. Thanks. We have an idea of what happens behind the scenes and what happens to the setup afterwards, but how about the coaches and Olympians? Juliet Hanauer joins us now with some information on the uh, on an Olympic coach's perspective. Nate has an Olympic coach right here on campus. Jules Ochar has been to three Olympics, and he says what makes the Olympics special is that all the participants who make it there are already champions. They're at the top of their game. Nate athletes he's coached have won 65 champions, 13 world games, and four Olympic medals, including his most famous student, who's considered the world's best curler. Jules Osher is a Nate coach that has a natural talent for spotting a winner. He's been coaching winning curlers for 49 years on campus. His most famous student is Kevin Martin, who is considered the greatest curler of all time. Jules accompanied Martin to three Olympic Games, where he won silver and gold medals. Kevin holds the record for the most Olympic victories, with 20 total wins. I asked Jules if the Olympics was different than any other competition. He said walking into a competition with a maple leaf on your back made it different. Being at the Olympics is, is unique because, you, you know, as I mentioned, if you're representing uh, Canada at the world, you're going in with all the athletes from all the sports, and you're sort of a family, and you walk in together. We've got a job to do, and we're going we're gonna to cheer for each other, and we're going to try and win as many medals as possible. Kevin retired in 2013. Now he's in Korea announcing the Olympic curling competitions. Oshar officially retired from Nate in 2003, but he continues to coach men and women's curling. Oshar says he looks forward to working with Nate students every Monday and Wednesday. He says Nate has been great for training curling athletes. Jules Oshar has no plans to stop coaching. Jules said that the Olympics are good for the athletes because it makes them Olympians. That's a dream come true for them, and it's what they've worked so hard for. Great. The dedication put in from these coaches is so admirable. You're absolutely right, Jenna. How about the Olympians, though? They're so dedicated to their sport and their country. I talked to an Olympian who competed for Trinidad and Tobago in the Rio 2016 Olympics. Marissa Dick is a Trinidad and Tobago artistic gymnast. She was the first gymnast to represent the country in the Olympics, but what's even more interesting than that is she was born in Canada. She grew up competing for her club in Alberta, where her coach found out that her mom had dual citizenship because she was born in Trinidad and Tobago. After this, they started looking into the gymnastics programs there. The president of the Trinidad and Tobago Gymnastics Federation reached out to us and was like, oh, hey, we heard that you have dual citizenship and that you're interested in competing for us and we'd love to have you. So, yeah, basically after that phone call, I went down to Trinidad and Tobago just to kind of show my skills and everything. And then I got a Trinidad and Tobago passport and off I went. The country overall was supportive of Dick in the Olympics, but it wasn't always the case. There was another athlete from Trinidad and Tobago. Thema Williams was a gymnast who grew up there and originally trained there. 
and they thought that she should be the one to represent them. So then when it came around to Olympic trials, um, like gymnastics started getting hype in Trinidad and um, everybody basically in the, not everybody, but most of the country wanted her to go because she was like the homegrown athlete and everything. And I ended up getting quite a bit of backlash just about like that I was using the country to get there and just to get to the Olympics and everything. And a lot of the country didn't know that I had been competing for their country for the past like four years. And so um, that was a little bit tough. I went through a little bit of a hard time just leading up to the Olympics between like the Olympic trials of people just, yeah, not accepting me, not wanting me to compete for their country. And uh, But then once the time the Olympics came around and I was the athlete named to go to the Olympics, most of the country was pretty supportive and all my teammates that were there with me at the Olympics were really supportive. So it turned around, but there was a definitely a bit of a rough patch. Since Marissa had been competing for Trinidad and Tobago for several years, competing against the Canadian team wasn't that weird. It was actually nice for her to have familiar faces around, which made the whole process not quite as scary. I had always like just met up with them at competitions in Canada and then started competing against each other internationally and stuff. So it was, it was a really like comforting feeling just to have that kind of normal basis when I was starting my international career. Marissa retired from the sport in August after the Olympics. She said that she got what she wanted from the sport and is now focusing on her academic career and leading a normal life. I have so much respect for all of the athletes, the hours, sweat, tears, and blood that is put behind their sport, and the love that they have for their countries is so great, Connor. It's going to be a great Olympics this year, Jenna. Thanks for joining us of the Olympic edition of The Feed. Absolutely, Connor. Thank you. Hey, wait. The show's not over yet. There's still the Paralympics. Haven't you heard? Inspiring and exciting the world with elite sport, the Paralympic Games have grown into the third largest sporting event in the world. Transformed from a disability movement to one with sport at its core, para-athletes create a more inclusive society and inspire the world to believe that anything is possible. The first Winter Paralympics were held in Sweden in 1976, and as with the Summer Games, they have taken place every four years and include an opening and closing ceremony. However, it was not until the Winter Games in Albertville, France, in 1992, that the Paralympics started to be held in the same cities and venues as the Olympics. This was due to an agreement between the IPC and the IOC. The Games have taken off since 1976, bringing in millions of viewers and inspiring a new generation. A matter of fact, according to Amy McKinnon, Executive Director of the Paralympic Sports Association, every year after the Olympics, they see a rise in athletes interested in parasport. I noticed, I think a lot of people don't know that there's that kind of sports out there. Um, and then they'll watch these sports and then they are like, oh, look at like my child could do that or my friend could do that. So they often um, will get in contact with us and then ask kind of what our programs, what we offer and if we offer certain ones that they've seen in the Olympics or Paralympics. Yeah. With the rise of the Paralympics, companies have started to use the games as well as the athletes participating in their ads. With the most recent being Toyota, who featured Paralympian Lauren Wollstonecroft in their Super Bowl ad this year. The ad featured Lauren's life story and journey to the Olympics. And in Super Bowl first, the ad did not feature a vehicle produced this by the advertiser. Shortly after the Olympics, with over 80 medal events, the opening ceremony is March 9th. Thanks for the in- information, Justin. That's good to know. It's too bad a lot of people are forgetting about the Paralympics. Absolutely. It's going to be a great few weeks of Olympic action. The Paralympics are from March 9th to 18th. This has been it for the Olympic episode of The Feed. I'm Connor Sutherland. I'm Jenna Winterburn. Have a great day.
Thank you for listening to The Feed. Miss something? Catch the rebroadcast Sunday nights at 7 or find us at nr92.com.